Turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we're once again going to look at some passages from the book of Philippians in our consideration, our uh, yearly theme of looking through the book of Philippians. Um, and uh, the, a few verses in chapter 4 will be the focus of our, uh, of our study this month. In Philippians 4, the apostle writes in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you have been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Our focus this month, uh, particularly as we begin that uh, even this morning, uh, is to take a look at something that I consider as among Christians as a prized commodity. You know, some things are more valuable than others, uh, and I think that this is something that every one of us wants, that we all desire. But interestingly enough, though we desire it, it's one of those things that we very rarely acquire, uh, even in the process of a lifetime. It's something that we have to struggle maybe to come uh, to possess, uh, and yet it presents to us in many ways the very... Uh, foundation of our happiness in life. Because we live in a culture of discontent, uh, the aspect of contentment, of being someone who is satisfied with life, uh, is very challenging. We might recognize it from the standpoint of, uh, of the world around us and maybe even the experience of our, our own life that uh, life is built upon the principle among men uh, that we need to get better that we need to have more, that we need to strive for more. And so we follow in that course. Our quest is for better, it's for what comes next, it's for what's going to happen tomorrow. Uh, we want a better job, we want better pay, we want a better boss, we want better relationships, we want a better marriage, we want, we want a newer car, we want to see a bigger boat, a better golf swing. All of those things is what we want. We live for the next thing. Our lives are focused on the aspect of what's going to happen tomorrow, what's going to happen next week, I've got a vacation coming up, what's going to happen, what am I going to do, the next experience that I have. And because that is many times the very thrust of our quest in life, what people live for, uh, we recognize that to be satisfied, uh, to be finished with that particular desire for something that is better, would be not only a very new experience, but certainly would be something that would be welcomed. But we are not very satisfied. We're not very content. At least if we do get satisfied and we do feel like we've accomplished something, what we recognize, maybe many times some of us maybe that are older, is that it doesn't last very long. That it only stays around for a little while and then there's, we're on to something else or we're in pursuit of something else or that which we have acquired has become tarnished and we no longer, it no longer does for us what we thought it would be. Why is that so? Why is contentment, being satisfied over a long period of time, uh, why is that so difficult for us? Uh, in the course of our study this month, I want to try to answer some of those questions, at least the ones that are found in the scriptures, and we're not going to be able to maybe present all the answers that might be applicable to that question. But at least in part, I think there are two reasons that are evident that I want to talk about a little bit this morning as to why contentment is so elusive. One is that it's like searching for diamonds on the beach, that we're looking for it, but we're looking for it in all the wrong places. We'll not find it where we're looking for it. And though we desire it, and though we honestly want to have it, it doesn't matter about our desires. 
is not to be found where we're looking. And secondly, if we did find it, if it was there before us, or at least the opportunity for satisfaction and contentment was there before us, we wouldn't recognize it if we saw it. And there have been times when I've found myself in search of something that both of those things applied. I lost something I was trying to find and I come to realize I'm not looking in the, I'm not looking in the right place. It's not here. I thought it was here, but it's not here. Or that I'm looking for it and I think I know what it is, but I think I know what it looks like, but I'm not real sure and so I may look at it be right in front of me and I don't realize that that's it. And since contentment is that way, satisfaction in life is that way, and I say that from the perspective not only of, of making statements from my own experience about what it means to be satisfied, and you can make the same statements from your own experience about what you think satisfaction is about, but I believe these things are biblically oriented. I think the aspect of understanding what contentment is as Christians, we ought to arrive at those conclusions and come to those conclusions what God tells us about it. Interestingly enough, the Bible has a lot to say about contentment besides Philippians chapter 4. The idea that a person in their life would be able to have an attitude about life and a perspective about life that would make them happy and be at peace, that would make them contented. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 24, uh, what did I do? I just turned this thing off again. There we go. In Luke chapter 3 and verse 24, John the Baptist, in the discussion, interestingly enough, of true repentance, told soldiers that he was talking to to be content with their wages. That was a tall order. For them and for us. And then second in chapter 12, the Apostle Paul spoke about his own sufferings, about the things he had physically experienced in being an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he said that he was well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecution, with difficulties for Christ's sake. Again, the perspective being that being a Christian, living a Christian life in a very difficult place calls upon the aspect of being content. In an exhortation against greed, and the influence of money. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the Apostle Paul said, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith and their greediness, and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. So Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, in a discussion about avarice and greed, that the love of money is the root of all evil, and that the answer to all of that is to recognize the value of contentment, that it is a profit to be content. The writer of Hebrews wrote, make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. And so there are in the context of what the scriptures say about contentment, there is, in a sense, you see, there is um, a uniformity or there is a common ground. That contentment is the ability to look at the resources that we have in life and the things that we possess with satisfaction, to not want more. And that the enemy contentment is the love of money. It is greed. It is the aspect, you see, of always wanting to, more, to want more. And so there is in the discussion about uh, about covetousness and about greed, there is this discussion as well about contentment. Now, the Bible not only defines it as a positive virtue, but prescribes it as a command to be obeyed. First Timothy chapter 6 certainly would point that out. 
that we are begin to be content with what we have. Hebrews chapter 13. Well, what does it mean? What does the word itself mean in the scriptures? What is contentment? Well, that's a good place to start, I suppose. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs defined contentment like this. He said, Christian contentment is that sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Which I suppose is a pretty good definition. It's a poetic way of saying that a person is satisfied with what he has and that that comes from within. That contentment is something not that I possess physically. It doesn't arrive because I gain a certain position in life or because I possess something in life that I didn't have before. It is being satisfied right where I'm at, a satisfaction that comes from within, an inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit. Interestingly enough, the term contentment is not found in the Old Testament. But the duty is implied. In fact, you look at the commandments of God, the Tenth Commandment, thou shalt not covet. It's based upon the aspect of not wanting what belongs to someone else. Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife. To be satisfied is based upon the aspect of being free from covetousness. The Proverbs often voice this aspect, that a person would be happy in life if they were satisfied with what they have. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1, Better is a dry morsel with quietness than a household of feasting with strife. So if you're going after something, you're going to try to acquire something, and it's going to cause you a lot of trouble, you're better off without it. You'd be better off just not to try to get it, in that sense. In the context of the blessing of God's people, in the covenant relationship, the idea of contentment was a part of what God said He would provide. That they would come into the land and they would be able not only to sustain themselves, but everything that they had around them would be satisfying. That there would, be, there would not be a time for disappointment and disillusionment. That those who are faithful to God will live in contentment. Even when life is rough, they would be the ability to be able to be at peace with one's life. A very poetic aspect of that is in, uh, that is presented is in Habakkuk chapter 3. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will joy in the God of my salvation. What Habakkuk was presenting there was the principle. The principle that if God is with a person, if God has provided for a person, then physical things do not define their happiness. That a person has the ability to be content and satisfied even though the physical things are not around. Now, what we, as we mentioned before, though it may be found only in principle in the Old Testament, what we recognize is that the, the concept of contentment and the command to, to be content is developed extensively in the pages of the New Testament and the writings of the New Testament. The passage we're looking at in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11 where Paul says that he learned the secret of contentment, or he learned how to be content, Paul uses a word in Philippians chapter 4, where the word autarkasi, I think that's how you pronounce it, is translated as self-complacent, or the aspect to be contented, to be satisfied. Interesting, that particular word is related to a word that's used more in the New Testament and translated by the word contentment or content. And that is the word archaeo. And archaeo was a familiar word among the Greeks. The word archaeo meant to be self-sufficient. It meant to be independent. This is the word that Paul uses in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
when he tells us there that godliness with contentment is great gain. That the idea of being dependent, being uh, independent, outside, uh, uh, not free from any outside dependence, was a very powerful concept among the Greeks. In fact, the idea of being happy in the Stoic philosophy was that you had to divorce yourself from the influence of anything that was outside. So the Stoics thought happiness came through the, the, uh, the, the suppression of every emotion, that you didn't react to circumstances, you stayed in an even keel. And as you learned to do that and devoid your life of any out, of, of influence and any outside emotion that would react to something, then you would be happy. Now, Stoicism is not what Bible teaches, and the aspect of that philosophy of life does not, is not biblically sound. But the terminology here is significant in the sense that Paul uses the word here that the Greeks would use to talk about being independent of any outside influence, self-sufficient, to describe this aspect of being content. That to have a peace of mind meant that you stood alone. The Greeks used it to, to define a nation that didn't have to import anything. You know, we talk about that in terms of our oil today, too, and the natural resources. You know, if we could be a country where we didn't have to depend on somebody else for where we got our oil, wouldn't that be wonderful? And the Greeks look at that from the standpoint not only corporately of nations, but of people as well. If you get to the point where you don't need anybody else, and that's certainly the aspect here of satisfaction in life. You don't have to react to what somebody else does. There's not the ups and downs because, you see, you're taking care of yourself. Now, Paul used that word that the Greeks were so familiar with, but he didn't mean the aspect, in terms of contentment, of self-sufficiency. But rather, he used the word to to describe something that is much higher than that, that even transcends the aspect of any ability of a person to be self-sufficient, and that is the person who finds their sufficiency in God. That the apostles used was to present this type of self-sufficiency that rested on the work and the promises of someone else, a total dependency on someone who could provide totally everything that a person needed. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, Paul uses that word again when he says that in answer to his prayer that the thorn of his flesh be removed, God said no. He says, I learned in that that God was saying to me, my grace is sufficient, archaeo, my grace is sufficient for you. Now the question is, was Paul satisfied with that? Well, certainly he was. In fact, that's the point of the whole passage, isn't it? That what Paul was saying is that what God taught me there was that I could rely upon him and be satisfied even though I had this thing that was so oppressive in my life that it was such a thorn in the flesh that every day I had to deal with it that I could be content even in that great weakness. Why? Not because he learned to devoid himself of any emotion, not because it didn't really hurt or he... He decided that he was not going to let it hurt him, but rather the idea here that he put his trust in God. His sufficiency was in the grace or the gift of God. Now, return to Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4. What does the apostle tell us about contentment here? Well, in the context, again, that's how we need to understand these things, I think, understanding the aspect of how they're used in the context. In the context, Paul earlier had spoke about the peace of God. He said the peace of God which it passes understanding. And then he talked about the aspect that God will guard your hearts through that peace and that the God of peace will be with you. He spoke about joy and called upon them to be individuals that rejoice even in the face of great suffering. He presented himself in the last verses we just studied as an example of that, as one who put his mind on those things that were good and honorable and just. And because he, was that, because he put his mind on those things, he could practice those things. And so Paul says, well, follow me. 
in the way that you live your life. You will have a life of joy and peace if you follow my example. In the context of presenting himself as one who was living a joyful and peaceful life, Paul took the occasion here at the end of the letter to thank the Philippian brethren because they had supported him in his work. He thanked them for supporting him financially in verses, chapter 4, verse 10. And in preaching the gospel elsewhere, verses 14 through 16, he said, it was only you who supported me when others were not. But in giving them this gratitude for what they'd done for him in the past, he didn't want them to get the wrong idea. Sometimes we can misinterpret somebody when they come and say thank you. It might be that they would think that he was thanking them because he wanted them to send more. And he didn't want them to get the wrong idea. He didn't want them to think that he was being gracious here so that they would open up their pocketbooks and, get, and send him more. And so he tells them, no, no, I have enough. In verse 18, he says, I'm full. i got everything I need. I'm not saying this to you because I want more. In fact, he says, I have learned to be satisfied, content. In every circumstance, I've learned to be content. Now, what's Paul tell us in the context of his personal experience about contentment? Well, I think what he tells us here is that contentment, in the biblical sense, is comprehensive. That contentment, as Paul had learned it, was not dependent on circumstances. He wasn't saying, I'm full because you sent me enough. In fact, he's saying just the opposite of that. He's not saying, don't send me anymore because what you, what you gave me, that provided for me the satisfaction that I need. No, he goes beyond that. He says, I'm content and have been content in every circumstance, implying even if they had not provided for him and they had not given him what they'd given him, he still would have learned the ability to be satisfied and content because it was not dependent upon the circumstances he found himself in. So, interestingly enough, Paul learned contentment through his own experience. It wasn't something he was born with. It didn't come to him through osmosis or some mystical way. He learned to be content. He learned contentment through experience, yet it was not the same experience. And contentment was not based upon any particular experience. There were many times when Paul suffered great need, when what he needed far exceeded what he actually possessed. From the time of his conversion, he was persecuted and harassed for his faith in God. He goes on to talk about the fact that, uh, uh, in, in many of his epistles, about the fact of his persecution. And some, no doubt, that weighed on his mind. I think about, uh, in, in, I think it's 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he talks about the fact that he was, no, maybe 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he talks about being let down in the basket. He mentions that. You, know, one of those, you ever think of events maybe that stick in your mind? You know, I remember when this happened to me. I, can't, I will never forget when that happened to me. Paul wasn't a, hadn't been a Christian very long in Damascus when you see uh, there was a call for him to be put to death and he had to be let out of the, he had to be whisked out of town for fear of his life. And that happened a couple of times when there are people who attempted to assassinate Paul when he was in Caesarea. And so those things stuck in his mind. And when he talks about the aspect of his life, many times it was punctuated by this element of physical suffering and harm. There were times, you see, when he, when, uh, when he was left for dead and when individuals uh, dis- tried to discredit his name. No doubt when he continued to be in great danger. But then there were other times. 
The other times when Paul went into a city and people listened to what he had to say, when he was able to establish a group of God's people where there, no, where there was no church before, where he had other brethren that followed him and even gave their life, were willing to give their life for Paul. Great companions, great friends, comrades in the faith that he developed over a period of time. And so Paul says, I learned how to be abased. The word abased there means to be humiliated. To live in a humble way. And I know how to abound. The word abound there means to live in prosperity. He'd been here, he'd been there. And he says it doesn't make any difference whether I was here or there. Despite these different circumstances, I have learned to be satisfied. Now how do you do that? Well, I think what we recognize is that Paul kept his focus on the reality of God's promises. He kept his focus on God's protection. He did not allow his life his life's attitude, to disrupt his faith in God. And because he was able to keep his focus on what really he was doing and what really was important and what really was real, then he was able to have this contentment. So the bad time did not make him insufficient because God was working in his behalf. Therefore, he says in chapter 4, Second four verse sixteen. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Why we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I'd have us notice here that Paul obviously is talking about the aspect of reaching heaven and the glory that's yet to come. Yet when he breaks down this aspect of why we do not lose heart, it brings around to the point of the aspect of seeing. And that's precisely what Paul has already talked about in Philippians chapter 4 and talks about many places. Is that It's all a matter of what I'm looking at, what I'm putting my eyes on. He said it, in, as we looked at last week, the aspect of what you think about, what you put your thoughts on, that you become what you are, you become what you think about. And if you think about these things and practice them, you see, then it provides for you a great... Uh, perspective from which to do the things that are right and be pleasing to God. And so he says, the things that we look at are the things which are not seen because they are eternal. The good time did not make him feel self-sufficient. Because why? Because God was working in his behalf. So the bad times didn't make him feel as though he was insufficient and when things did go well, it didn't make himself feel as though he was self-sufficient, as though he did not need God. His peace of mind or his satisfaction was not based upon the good things or when things would go his way. Not even the money from Philippi would fall into that category, but rather his relationship with Christ. Now again, we look at the text because what Paul says here in this context bears that out. That what Paul says about the fact that he was full the fact that he had everything that he needed was because it was through Christ that he could do all things. That Christ was the way in which he accomplished what he accomplished. When things did go his way, it was, things, it was the fact that things were going God's way. And that's what he recognized. And so I can do, he says, all things through Christ. We're going to look at that, Lord willing, next month. What Paul was saying there when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But... One thing we've got to be careful not to do is ever take that passage and rip it out of its context. Because what Paul's talking about in that context is contentment, being satisfied with life. How can a person do that? How can he learn contentment? By recognizing that he can do everything, not to himself, 
not because things go his way, but he can do everything because Christ strengthens him. That's his sufficiency. So simply put, what we recognize is contentment is being satisfied with what God provides. True contentment is based upon this aspect of the providence of God. It's at the heart of this command that God takes care of his people. So discontent, discontentment, being unsatisfied, is not sinful because it makes me unhappy. It does. I don't like feeling not content, always striving for something else, not being satisfied, not being full. But that's not what makes it wrong. It's not wrong because it makes me unhappy. But because it's an affront to the provision of God and my faith in Him. Because it impugns the aspect that God will take care of me, and that He wants to take care of me, and that He has taken care of me. And so discontent is an indication of a lack of faith. If we seek peace, if we seek satisfaction in life, then we will seek it in the pursuit of a greater faith. And so therefore, what we recognize is that when individuals go out and try to possess physical things, when they acquire, try to get a better job, a better circumstance, a better life, a better marriage, whatever it might be, thinking that that's what will bring them contentment, they're looking in the wrong place. Contentment is found by looking for a greater faith, striving to have a greater trust in God. And as I draw closer to God, He draws closer to me and provides for me that which only He can provide. And that is the satisfaction in life. Understanding in that context what contentment is not, because sometimes we ascribe attitudes or circumstances to contentment that have nothing to do with it at all. Contentment is not resignation, denial of one's feelings. It isn't pretending that everything's all right when it's not. It isn't saying, well, this, is, this, this doesn't really hurt as bad as it does. <laughs> it is a peace that exists in a full recognition of suffering. It's a contentment that recognizes this hurts just as bad as it really does hurt. It is knowing that God is bigger than our problems and transcends them, not a denial of them. It's not a lack of ambition to do better. Paul often called on Christians to be satisfied with their spiritual status, to press on, to not look at the things that are behind. In his very letter, he told them to pursue a better relationship with God and a greater degree of spirituality. Paul said and well about himself that he buffeted his own body that he might bring it into subjection, that he was in the, in the very process of learning how to be closer to God. Contentment is not comfort. And I think this is the big mistake that we make or the big false perception of contentment that they had, was Paul content because everything was comfortable for him? We sit in our easy chair and our widescreen TV and suffer because we have to maybe, our remote battery went dead and we think that somehow we have solidarity with Paul when he says, I'm content. No, probably not. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. In verse 9, the Apostle Paul is describing the plight of, a, of an apostle. How prestigious and glorious it would be to be chosen to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, an ambassador of the Lord. When Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter nine, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this in verse 9, For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. He's given the image here of someone who's a king who's conquered another nation and they're leading in this great procession. Behind the, the conquering king are all those who've been taken captive. And the very end of the procession, you see, are the most despised. Those folks who are going to be put to death. Those people mean nothing. Their property to be thrown away. They've been subjugated. He says, it seemed to me that God's put us at the end of the parade. Like men condemned to die in the arena, we have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honored, but we are dishonored. 
To this very hour, we go hungry and thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We are homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we are cursed, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure it. When we are slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world, Paul said. He says, look at us. What have we gained by serving Christ? What's this all about? And yet Paul says, suffering all of these things, I am content. I endure persecution. I'm able to go put up with slandering and answer back with kindness. Why? Because God is sufficient. And because He has Christ. But not just because they're apostles, but they're apostles of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as he describes the very things that Paul had suffered, he talks about those, you see, who were who false apostles of his own day who were trying to discredit uh, Paul. He says, are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 slashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day and a night in the open seas. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in dangers from rivers, in dangers of bandits, in dangers from my own countrymen, in dangers from the Gentiles, in dangers in the city, in dangers in the country, in dangers at sea, in dangers from false brethren. I've labored and toiled and have gone and have, have often gone without sleep. I've also known hunger and thirst. And I've often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And he said, besides all of this, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Besides all of that, I got my job. What kind of life is that to live? How would that make your life? If that's what you had to go through. If that was your experience. And yet Paul says, I got everything I need. I'm full. You don't have to say anything. I'm good. You see what a challenge this is. And the the relentless threat of discontent can be seen as well as it impacts the society that we live in. And quickly, let me suggest to you that our our dissatisfaction with the circumstances as much as they change provides for us a real threat because circumstances do change. And that's not to suggest that true contentment can be achieved when we get the right circumstances. We're saying just the opposite of that. But in order to learn how to be content, we need to recognize what threatens us around us that we need to be aware of. Think about this aspect that there are two lines, parallel lines. They told me in math class that means those lines never intersect. They stay stay the distance apart. There are two lines that never intersect. What two lines are there? Well, there's all there is to have. Everything that you could possibly possess. You got all that stuff? No, you don't. There's another line, what we have now. So there's a line of everything you could possibly have and then below that, how below, far that below, that may depend. Even if you're one of the one percenters, it's not the same line. It's below that. Everything that I have now. And what exists in the middle, you see, is the level of discontent. That whether we're talking about education, looks or money, marriage, job, there's, a, there's an ideal. This is, what I, this is what I could have. This is what's presented to me as being ideal, what I need. And all of those things, I need to look like this, I need to have this kind of education, I need to, you see, have this kind of family, I need to have all these things, this is what I need to have. But I don't have it, i got it down here. I'm down here. So as I strive to get those things, there is this level of discontent that we have, and that sort of defines in some ways what exists. Well, what happens if the top line moves up? 
And there's progress and there's prosperity and there's more things to have than there was before. As late as 1990, the average grocery store had 7,000 items in the grocery store. Same grocery store today has 40 to 50,000 items on the shelf. Oh, I need that. Oh, I need that. I need that. And then there's the aspect of the internet and what's available to us. You think of all the products and the services that did not exist that your parents and your grandparents never had to worry about having because those things weren't around. That 20 years ago there were no camera phones, smartphones, iPads, Bluetooth devices, all the things you see that make our life what we think it ought to be and hybrid cars and educational opportunities and careers and jobs that didn't exist before. And now they're all out there and we need those things. We've got to have those things. You see, when the line goes up, the gap grows larger, and the challenge to be content with the world that we live in becomes even more challenging. But what if the bottom line goes down? If you could see every, keep everything exactly the way it was in the same aspect of what people were able to possess, but you no longer have those things because they've been taken away, and you've lost your job, and you've lost your family, and you've lost those things that you think make, make life meaningful, and those things, you see, go away, and we have to live on less. What's challenged there? Our contentment, our satisfaction. So you see, that's what Paul's saying. Things get good and it threatens our it threatens our contentment. Things get bad and it threatens our contentment. And yet Paul says it doesn't make any difference if the line goes this way or this line goes that way. I will be content in both circumstances. So the face of contentment, what does it look like? There are a lot of faces of contentment that we recognize that are not really true. Some would, some would suggest you see this aspect that... Uh, contentment is that which would exist at a higher level among those individuals who have more. That if we were going out in the world and we looked for contented people, to whom would we look? Would we look among those you see who are young, who have good health? We look among those who are socially acceptable, the celebrities of our age, or the people that have a lot of money, have a lot of resources. And if we were going to look for discontent, if we wanted to go out and find the people of the world that are really dissatisfied with the way things are going, where would we look? The third world countries, the people that have less, the ghettos, the people you see where they're, that are struggling with life. And what we recognize is, though, is that in reality, those paradigms are false. That there's just as much discontent, in many ways more discontent, amongst those who have things and you have what we think will bring contentment as those who do not have them. In fact, it may very well be the opposite of that. A few years back, some of you know, I had the opportunity to go to Venezuela and, uh, and officiate baseball there and to be in a totally different environment than I'd ever been before, to be among people that were, in terms of the aspect of living uh, with, the, with today's material goods, were far below where I had experienced in my life and the things that I had. There were so many things that I took for granted that those folks that I was living with and the Christians that I was worshiping with in Venezuela did not have and maybe didn't even know that they were available. And I looked around even at the situation they were in. I'm thinking, could I be satisfied here? Yet when I talked to Louise about his own life, the thing that, came, that he said to me more often than anything else is, this is the most beautiful place in the whole world to live. Don't you wish you lived here? He was satisfied. He was contented. And I would suggest to you it had very little to do with material things. It had to not be based on material things. 
It had to be based on something else. And so when we think about this aspect of the face of contentment, the face of contentment is trust in God. It's rooted in what God provides for us. It's the fruit of living by faith. Not a single faith of a single moment, but living by faith day by day in every circumstance. Man, a man once went to his minister because he was having a difficult time in life. He wanted some advice. and the, He was in the midst of financial collapse and he says, I've lost everything. And his preacher said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that you've lost your faith. He says, no, 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 I haven't lost my faith. Well, I'm sad to hear that you've lost your character. He says, no, no, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I still have my character. Well, I'm sorry that you've lost your salvation. He says, no, that's not what I'm talking about. I didn't say I lost my salvation. He says, well, if you have your faith and you have your character and you have your salvation, see, to me, you haven't lost anything. Really. And that's kind of the way it has to be looked at, isn't it? There are things that really matter. That if we lost those things, there would be a reason to be dissatisfied. But all those other things really shouldn't make us discontented. Contentment is not the fulfillment of what you want, but the realization of how much you already have. What do you have? Oh, if we could just pray like the Puritan. He sat down to a meal of bread and water and he bowed his head and declared, thank you, Lord, all this and Jesus too. All this and Jesus too. That's what Paul was thinking as he sat in prison in Rome and he contemplated his life. And he thought about the grateful brethren who had given him things to sustain himself. I got all this and I have Jesus too. Do you have Jesus? You want contentment? You want satisfaction? Don't look in the wrong place. And if you're looking for it, understand what it is that you're looking for. Recognize it for what it is. This contentment is not some passing, fleeting moment of emotional happiness. It is a satisfaction in the promises, the work of God. And that's only made available in Jesus Christ. So we invite you to become a Christian. Because if Jesus is anything, Jesus is enough. Jesus is enough. He's enough to take away the guilt of every sin that you have ever committed. He is enough. To provide for you the fulfillment of every promise that God has made to you. He is enough. Will you come to him? Be obedient. While we stand and while we stand.